if a man or a woman kills someone accidentally, unintentionally, inadvertently, for example, you are walking down a ladder and you fall, you slip, and you topple upon someone's head and you kill that person, you need to run to the city of refuge called the Ari Miklot. And you are supposed to be there until the death of the high priest, until the death of the Kohen Gadol. It's called the Ari Miklot. What happens if you don't run to the city of refuge? What happens if you stay outside the city of refuge? Says the Torah, then the Goyel Hadam, which is the avenger of the blood, a family member of the one that is deceased, that was murdered, that was killed, has a right to go and kill you. And he is not liable. And therefore you are to stay in that city of refuge. You cannot even come out for the sake of a mitzvah, to be a tenth for a minion. You can't leave the city for a bar mitzvah, for a bris, for a family simcha. You have to stay there until the passing, the death of the Kohen Gadol, until the passing of the high priest. Now, the question comes to mind, why do we connect this murderer with the death of the high priest? Says Rashi like this, there are two reasons, there are two reasons why it is dependent upon the high priest. Number one is, the job of the high priest is to bring the divine presence, God's holiness to rest amongst the people of Israel. And to increase the length of the lifespan of the people of Israel. And this murderer, he is now removing the divine presence from amongst Israel. A murderer removes God's presence. Number one, he's a sinner. Number two is, each person has a spark of God within them. When a person dies, that spark of God now is lost. It returns to heaven. And therefore, there's less of the Shekhinah in this world. And therefore, any Kedai, Shihei Lifnei Kohen Gadol. And therefore, this murderer is not fit to be in front of the high priest. So being that the high priest was able to go anywhere in Israel, this person was not supposed to be in front of him. He had to be in the city of refuge. Now there's a similarity between this law and another law. And that is, in the holy temple, there was a mezbeach, there was an altar. And on the altar, you used to bring daily sacrifices. The Torah tells us, pertaining to this altar, that it needed to be made out of stone that had no contact with metal. So it had to be pure stone that was taken out of the mine and it could not be hewn or cut in any fashion with metal. So this is the way you built the Mizbeach, the altar in the Holy Temple. Why? Says Rashi there. Because the Mizbeach, the altar, by bringing sacrifices on the altar, you prolonged the life of the human being, of the individual that offered the sacrifice. And metal, and metal, and steel, that cut stone shortens the life of mankind. Therefore, they should not be together. 
Furthermore, says Rashi, that by bringing sacrifices on this altar of stone, it brings shalom, it brings peace into the world. Peace between man and God, peace between man and man, husband and wife, and still a metal brings the opposite. It brings death, brings separation between man and man, man and woman, and man and God. So therefore, you're not allowed to have any steel to cut these stones, but the stones had to be pure without any association with metal. And similarly here, says Nashi, that because the Kohen Gadol represented life, the Yitzayach, the murderer, even though he did it accidentally, is not allowed to be in the presence of the high priest. Number two, says Rashi, the Kohen Gadol was supposed to pray. That nothing bad should happen to the Jewish people in his lifetime. The job of the high priest is to pray that no accidents happen like this. That no deaths happen by mistake. No murders take place during his lifetime. So therefore, the fact that this person perpetrated this death, even though it was done accidentally, it's upon the shoulders of the high priest. And when the high priest passes away, that person is now free. He's allowed to return to his city, to his house. But now, during this time, he must move to the city of refuge, and his entire family is allowed to move together with him. But he is never allowed to leave unless the high priest dies. This is the Rashi. Now the question comes to mind, why do we need two interpretations in Rashi? Why is one not enough? What's the question over here? What is bothering Rashi? So, the question here is as follows. It seems when you read the verses that the reason why the murderer needs to go into the city of refuge is because of the concern that the avenger of the blood will come to kill the murderer. Now, if that is the case, one can argue, how long does the avenger of the blood have the desire to take revenge? You get angry for a month, for two months, but after that, eventually it subsides, you calm down, and you're not willing to murder the person. Especially, it was done by mistake. It was not done purposely. Now, we see this by, by Rivka. Rivka tells Yaakov, who took the blessings from his father, Yitzchak Isaac, and Esau was very upset. He said, you stole my blessings. Esau said, I'm going to kill Yaakov. So Rivka tells Yaakov, go away for a short while till Esau cools down, and you'll come back. So we see, there's a concept. There's a time you're angry, and eventually, as time passes, time heals, and now one calms down. So if that is the case, that the murderer killed accidentally is concerned about the avenger of the blood, then it's right to say that after a few months, or maybe a year, he should be able to go home. Comes along Rashi and says, no, that's not the only reason why. It's not the only reason why he has to go to the city of refuge. He needs to go to the city of refuge because he committed a sin. And that is you killed another person. <clears throat> and therefore, the kapara, or the kapara, 
the atonement for the sin is to be all your life in the city of refuge. That's the kapara. As it says in other places, galut or golus mechaperes. Being in a state of exile, exile forgives. Exile atones. So now that you go to the city of refuge, that is the atonement. So why do we connect this with the Kohen Gadol? And how does the Kohen Gadol's death allow the person to leave? So the answer is like this. We already learned in the Pasha of Chukas that the death of tzaddikim, the death of righteous people, bring atonement to the world. And that is why the death of Miriam is juxtaposed to the mitzvah of the red heifer. Just like the red heifer brings atonement to a person who is impure, so too the death of a great tzaddik, like Miriam, a tzaddikis, brings atonement to the world. So that we already know from the previous parishes. But the question here is, why is it associated primarily with the Koyin Gadol, the high priest? Comes along Rashi, and Rashi tells us that the reason it's associated with the death of the high priest is because the high priest, he should have prayed to make sure that everybody in his country, everybody in his world, everybody in his nation should remain safe. And we know the Kohen Gadol and Yom Kippur goes into the Holy of Holies and he prays for the entire nation of Israel. The Kippur Badoi, Vabesoi for himself and for his household and for Am Yisrael, the entire Jewish people. So it must be that he did not pray properly. But once he passes away, that, that passing is now an atonement for the murderer. And he's able to now leave the city of refuge. So this is the interpretation of Rashi. What is the hint? So we read a few moments ago, not only the Pasha of Masay, but also in the book of Deuteronomy, the Pasha of Shoftim, that deals with the city of refuge as well. And there it says, and if a time will come that God will expand your borders, then you should add an additional three cities of refuge. So in the parish of Masay, it says you should have six cities of refuge. And in the parish of Shoftim, it says, and if for some reason the land of Israel is now Expanded, you have to add three more. Now, the Rambam says in Sefer Hayad, in his Magna Opus, in the Laws of Malachim, and Long of Kings, he says that God does not give us a commandment in vain. And if this will happen, then you should do that. Rather, it's saying it will happen. When will it happen? When Mashiach comes. And when Mashiach will come, we're going to add three more cities of refuge. And the Rambam uses this mitzvah in the Torah as a proof for the coming of Mashiach, that the time will come, that Mashiach will come, and he will expand the borders of Israel, he will rebuild the third holy temple, and he's going to add three more cities of refuge. So this is how the Ari Mikla, the city of refuge, is connected with the time to come, with the Geula, with the coming of Mashiach. What is Drush? What is the Amaletics? And halacha. In the Sefer Achinuch, which is a book that enumerates the 613 commandments of the Torah and gives a pirush, 
He gives an explanation for all of the commandments. It's worth getting. It's a book, not only in Hebrew, but today you could, you could read it in English as well. He says over there that there are six mitzvos that a person needs to live with every single day of their life and every moment of their life. And these are, he calls these six mitzvos the six ori miklot, the six cities of refuge where we have to run into and hide and protect ourselves with these six mitzvahs all day long. And this will protect us from all sin in the world around us. And they, they are number one, lahamim ba'ashem, to believe in God. Mitzvah number one. Number two, shuloy lahamim, not to believe in other gods or other powers outside of God. God is the only power. Number three, to believe in God's oneness, only one God, which means everything in the world is part of God's oneness. Number four, lava, to love Almighty God. It's not enough that you believe in Him, but you have to love Him. I know sometimes we get upset with God because we don't get everything we want. We're like babies, we're children, kvetching, complaining. The mitzvah is you have to love Hashem, no matter what. Number five, liyira, to have awe and fear of God, which means respect for God. There's a lower level of fear of punishment, but we're not concerned about that. We're, we're mature adults. It's about liyira, to, to have awe and appreciation and respect for Almighty God. And then number six, as we say in the Shema every day, not to follow your heart's desires and your eyes, what they see, which means idolatry and promiscuity. So these are the six cities of refuge every day that we can protect ourselves from all of the inconsistencies and toxic waste in the world around us. What does Kabbalah say? Kabbalah says that the six cities of refuge represent the six books of the Mishnah. When a person studies the six books of the Mishnah, which is Torah, as the Gemara says, the Torah is your refuge. If you need to hide and protect yourself from all the Mishagas, all the toxins, and chaos in the world around us, and our struggles and hardships and dilemmas, run into the Torah. Open up a Jewish book and learn some Torah, learn some Chumish, learn some Tanya, learn some, some Mishnayis, learn some Gomorrah, learn some Rambam. By going into the Torah, this is the way you will be saved from all the problems and nonsense of the world around us. What is the three additional cities of refuge? Says Kabbalah, this represents these teachings of Kabbalah. That Mashiach will come, there'll be a new revelation of Torah, a new depth of Torah that will be revealed, which are primarily the secrets of Torah. Today we have a taste of this. In Kabbalah and the Chassidus Chabad, which again, Chachma bin Adas, is three, alludes to the three cities of refuge. But when Mashiach will come, it's going to be revealed on a whole new level. So this is the idea of Soyd. What does is, what is Chassidus say? Chassidus asks the following question. Seemingly, it makes no sense that after Mashiach will come, says the Rambam, we're going to have three additional cities of refuge. Now, why do you need a city of refuge? 
because if by mistake you killed somebody, you have to run to the city of refuge. After Mashiach comes, there won't be death. After Mashiach comes, there won't be sin. And you won't be killing each other by mistake. So in the Yemois of Mashiach, in the days of Mashiach, why do we need these cities of refuge? And not only that, why do we need three more cities of refuge? Nine in total. It's brought down in Svarim that the sin of Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, in paradise brought about death to the world. And therefore, because he brought death into the world, Adam was supposed to be killed that moment. He was supposed to die. However, instead of that, he, had, he was banished. He was banished from paradise. Now, in truth, in truth, not only, not only Adam and Eve, the sin of the Chet, Eitz Hadas, brought about death to the world, but rather, in truth, any sin that we do is a form of death. Why? Because, what does it say? It says here that you spill the blood. You spill the blood of an innocent person. God gives us blood. Blood is our vitality. But when we use the blood to serve Hashem, to study Torah, to pray, to give charity, to make the world a better place, to use our mouth to speak praises of God and praises of our friends and inspire one the other, then we're using the blood for the proper reason. But if we use our talents and we use our vitality and we use our energy, God forbid, to violate Torah law, to violate God, to violate humankind, then, in truth, that is called death. We are spilling blood. And because of that, we need the city of refuge. The city of refuge is what? The city of refuge is Torah, as we said a moment ago. Because Torah is our blood. Torah is our vitality. So, by running into the city of refuge, which is Torah, this gives us a new perspective. It's a paradigm shift. We now do tshuva. And more than that, we now have a new blood transfusion. The blood that we lost through the sins are now gained through the additional study of Torah. So this is true throughout our life. This is true throughout the entire history of the Jewish people, starting from Adam and Eve, throughout the, the years of the diaspora, up until today, we have this concept, the spiritual concept, of running into the city of refuge to protect ourselves from this death comes the question to mind, why do we now need the city of refuge after Mashiach comes? And the answer is as follows. After Mashiach comes, there's going to be two different eras. There's going to be the first era called Yimbos HaMashiach, the days of Mashiach. There's going to be a second era, which is known as Ola Matchia, the world of resurrection of the dead. In the first era of Mashiach, the world will be at peace. And the glory of God and the knowledge of God will fill the entire world. As the Ramam says, The preoccupation of the entire world, Jews and non-Jew alike, will be to know, to know Torah and to know God. However, even though overwhelmingly the, the energy of the world will be, will be positive and we're going to want to do good things, however, Evil will still exist in isolated areas, 
evil will still exist. There will be pockets of evil. In other words, <coughs> now evil and good are all intertwined. Everything which is good has within it also some evil. Then it's going to be separated. But there will still be stores. There will still be locations. There will still be pockets where if you want, you can associate yourself with that evil and access that evil. So how do we protect ourselves from that evil? We now have the cities of refuge. And being that Mashiach is already here, and you're going to have the new level of Torah, he's going to introduce he's going to introduce a new level of Torah. So now we're going to have three more cities of refuge, which is primarily this new teaching that Mashiach is going to introduce, which are the secrets of Torah, which primarily represent the teachings of Chachma, Bina, and Das, which is the idea of knowledge, understanding, and intellect. So, by the fact that we will run into the Torah, and primarily into the Kabbalah, and to the Chassidis, and to the secrets of the Torah, this will shelter us and protect us. And this will be our refuge to overcome even these few packets of evil and those desires to want to attach yourself to the powers of impurity. My uncle, Rabbi Shia Hecht, writes in his new book that in the 1980s, he gets a call from a local resident, Mr. Horowitz, we'll call him, and he says to the rabbi, Rabbi Hecht, my father just passed away, and I found in my house a Sefer Torah, a Torah scroll. And I asked around, and my friends told me it's worth a lot of money. First, I thought it was worth only $15,000. Now I'm hearing it's worth around $30,000. And I don't know really too much about Torah scrolls. I can't even read Hebrew. Maybe the synagogue wants to buy it off me. So the rabbi says, oh, it sounds very interesting. Come on down. So they make a meeting Friday afternoon, 1 o'clock, with Rabbi Hecht and his president at the synagogue. And Mr. Horowitz comes. He brings the box. He puts it on the table. And he says, you know, I'd like you to look at the Torah and make me an offer. And um, my uncle opens the box. And the president is there. They take off, you know, the mantle. And the president bursts out laughing. He starts laughing. Mr. Horowitz says, what's the joke? This is a very serious, serious negotiation. He says, I'm laughing because, unfortunately, this is not a real Torah. This is a baby Torah. It's a toy Torah. This is a Torah that you buy in the bookstore for your kids. So they think they have a Torah, but it's not a real Torah. Now, Mr. Horowitz is not, is not laughing. He thinks that the rabbi is putting wool over his eyes. And he says, what do you mean it's not a real Torah? Of course it's a real Torah. Look, it's, it's two Eitzchayims, and you have all the, all the words. He says, look, let me show you. He opens it up. He says, look, this, this is paper. He says, for Torah, is not allowed to be written on paper. It has to be written on cloth, parchment. Number two, it has to be handwritten by a scribe. This is, this is a, a copy machine. Number three is you have English here. There's no Sefer Torahs that have English. It's only Hebrew. And number three, it says copyrighted in 1961. 
So this cannot be a real Torah scroll. Mr. Harwood says, I still don't believe you. What do you mean? Is that a, of course a real Torah scroll. My father had it in the house. He says, come, let me take you to the ark. So he brings him into the synagogue and he opened the ark. He takes out a real Torah scroll. This is heavy, you know. He says, now feel the weight. You feel the weight of the parchment? Yeah, I feel it. They put it on the bima. He opens it up and they unroll the Torah. He says, look, look at each letter, how it's written by hand. It's, the letters are thick ink and it shines from the light. And this is why it's $30,000 because it takes the scribe to write it an entire year. He has to work full time. And today, by the way, it's $60,000 or $70,000. So this is a copy machine. It's not a real Sefer Torah. The man felt totally embarrassed. But the rabbi said to him, look, you told me you don't know too much about Torah scrolls. Let me suggest, Friday night you come to the synagogue, and after that you come to my home, we'll have dinner together, and we will begin to learn what the meaning of a Torah scroll is all about. And so this is really the meaning of the Ari Miklat, the city of refuge. It's a time and opportunity to go into the Torah and to learn the Torah and to see the power of the Torah. And we hope and pray by the study of Torah and learning Torah, primarily the laws of Ari Miklat, very soon we will see the coming of Mashiach and how he will build three additional Ari Miklat with the coming of Mashiach, Bimheda, Bimeinu, Amen.